It's kind of sobering news to open up James chapter 3 because it's a sobering chapter of the Bible that sort of is made for us to be opened up about our sin problem. If you're like me, you live in a spiritual catch-22, sort of an unresolved conflict in your life where you say things that you wish you hadn't said, you make remarks to people, whether it's your family, people that are closest to you, or co-workers, or friends even, and we say things that we wish we could eat back into our lives and we wish we could make right. And at the same time, even though we sin and we say things that are wrong and we misspeak, we know that God's power is greater than the sin of our tongues. God is greater than our hearts. We're new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. Everything's become new. And so we're going, okay, I know I've got the power of God in my life. I know I'm in Christ I know I'm going to glory. I know that Romans 6 says that sin no longer has dominion over me. I was under the headship of Adam. Now I'm under the headship of Christ. I've been brought from uh, this domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. But why do I still say the things that I say? Why do I still have an angry, you know, spewing of words that will come out from time to time? You live in that dilemma, right? James 3 documents this dilemma for us. I was thinking of, uh, sort of saddened by a testimony I saw on the blogosphere this week that another Christian leader is stepping down from ministry. Uh, He is someone I know and respect and have read a lot as an author and have heard him preach. And he's in charge of a large ministry. And he's stepping down for a time of examination because people from the inside are accusing him of being high-fisted and dictatorial and too strong. And I don't really know the ins and outs of that scenario, but it saddens me because knowing this man's heart, as I've had shared some time with him personally and have been with him in, uh, you know, at a ministry conference, he's a man that would examine himself probably harder than the average Christian would. And so he's willingly stepping aside and he's not agreeing with these allegations. But at the same time, he's blogging and saying, listen, I'm happy to set set aside some time and examine my own heart because I know that there are sins and things that I need to deal with through this process. Wouldn't that be the testimony of all of us? If put up on the table for examination, we know that stuff would be found. And one of those areas is found in what we Say the words that come out of our mouths. Well, sort of to to look at this troublemaker called the tongue, let me read through verses 1 through 12. It's a unit about taming the tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways... And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. 
Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. There's a lot of bad news in this text about a very small member of our body. The word member means body part, and what James is talking about here is the two-ounce piece of flesh that lives inside of our mouths. It's a little tiny muscle, but James is saying this little tiny muscle, in one sense, appears to have a mind of its own, and it delivers a lot of trouble to our lives. Can we tame the tongue? Can we bridle the tongue? Can we find any success at all? Well, I want to tell you, look, we're going to look through a truckload of bad news and get to the last point, and hopefully I'll deliver some good news for you to provide some hope, because I think James provides it in this text for us. Just by way of review, James is talking to a pioneering group of churches. This would be like uh, sort of a a movement in Alaska, the the pioneer movement of early churches that were scattered abroad. They were still Jews by heritage primarily. They were being saved and part of these churches and and they were growing in their faith in Christ. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was trying to shepherd this flock that was kind of beating itself up with some controversies. If you look at James 4, 1 and 2, you see that there's quarrels and strife that was going on in the church. There was a threat there where people were speaking to each other in a way that was tearing apart the church. And so James begins by saying, listen, I'm going to shoot at the top. Not many of you should be teachers, first off. Because the teacher is responsible before God in what he or she says in the church. And there's a stricter judgment and accountability. He starts on a sobering note. And what we're going to find is five reasons we should be sobered by what we say. And the first is, is that our speech exposes our need for grace. Even at the highest level, even for teachers, we all need grace. Why? Because look at verse 2. It says, for we all stumble in many ways. Guess what? If you're talking a lot, it won't take long before our sin finds us out. And we, as if tripping over this tiny little muscle, it's like we trip over our tongues in what we say. Just like I said last week, Peter, when he spoke up, would often speak up with a foot-shaped mouth. Right? doesn't take long. 
Jesus said, people will be giving an account for every careless word that is spoken. That's the same sober note that James is striking here. That's Matthew 12. We all stumble in many ways. But then he goes on to say that speech, point two, is the most influential thing about us. And James gives a little glimmer of hope here, just by way of review, saying that if you're willing to deal on the heart level, working through the hard issues of what it takes to have godly speech, if you're digging your hands deep into the soil, down to the root issues of our hearts, then your spiritual life will be better in general. Look at what he says here in verse 2. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body as well. The word perfect here doesn't mean sinless perfection. It just means that every area of our lives will be touched by God's grace if we're willing to deal with the deepest heart issues that surround why we say the things we say. It's like in James 1, 4, where James is talking about considering trials as a joyful thing. And he's saying, look, if you're willing to bear up under difficult circumstances and see that in a joyful way, then you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, if you're dealing with your spiritual life on that root level, there's going to be spiritual fruit in general in your life. And he sort of proves this with a couple word pictures. He talks about bit and bridle being in a horse and how someone can steer a horse and guide it. He says, verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us and guide their whole bodies as well. It's the picture of a 70-pound girl who gets on top of a 1,200-pound thoroughbred and can pull the reins back and tighten the stirrups a bit and make it back up and stand up and dance around. If you control that area of your life by the power of God, then the whole thing is being steered. So in other words, if we're working hard, there's going to be general fruit in our lives. So it's, it's worthwhile to deal with the issues of the tongue because you're dealing with the deepest level of the heart. He says the same thing with rudders with ship. He says ships. He says, look at the ships. In other words, if you're steering a small rudder, the pilot is able to guide a ship through stormy seas and gale-forced winds, even with the slightest maneuvering of a rudder. It's the same thing with the tongue. The way that you're, you're doing in terms of your speech tells a lot about you, doesn't it? That's the way God made us. We examine ourselves in terms of the fruit that's coming out of our mouths. And if we see that the Spirit of God is beginning to control our speech, then we can have some confidence that the trajectory of our Christian life might turn out better and better. But if our speech is condemning us and we're talking people down all the time or blowing up in anger and there's no sense of betterment in our lives, then we need to be warned regarding what's going on inside of us. Jesus says, out of the mouth proceeds the abundance of the heart. So it tells us a lot. It's a barometer. It's the most influential thing about us. Number three, speech carries massive potential to destroy. This is verse five. And this is where James sort of turns the corner and tightens things down and begins to say, look, I really want you to be sobered by the damage that can be done with the tongue. He says it's a small member, it's a small body part, and he personifies it in verse 5. He says it's boasting and bragging about a lot. And then he says that the tongue is like an arsonist that wants to set your whole life on fire. 
He's personifying the tongue like this, this devilish teenager that wants to set fire to a house and destroy all of your possessions. Your tongue wants to play with matches and mess with your life. And then in verse 6, he cranks it up more. This is where speech is by nature an instrument for sin. He says the tongue isn't just the arsonist, it's the fire too that's burning up your world. It's a world of unrighteousness. It's staining all of your life. Have you ever seen somebody's life stained, by the way, by speech? By their own speech, where they say things and sort of ruin their reputation? Or other people staining other people's lives by saying things that they ought not say that, that sully or, or sort of jaundice a person's reputation? Staining the whole body. And it says it's set on fire by hell, verse 6. Again, the imagery here is the graphic picture of the garbage dump that was southwest of Jerusalem called Gehenna. It was the fire that was sort of never put out, always collecting and gathering the filth of Jerusalem that would be trucked there and burned constantly. It's, it's the imagery that Jesus picked up on there saying that Gehenna or hell is the unquenchable fire where the worm doesn't die. It's always maggot ridden. It was the actual sacrificial grounds that Gehenna was made for where, where children in yesteryear used to be sacrificed to the pagan god of Moloch. And so what James is saying here is, look, your tongue needs to be taken very seriously because it's fueled by hellfire. And he could be alluding to satanic forces or demonic forces because him knowing that Satan and the demons are going to be judged there, he was using that to personify demonic influence that comes up through our speech when we are, as Christians, in the flesh. This is the earthly and natural and demonic wisdom that can rise up within us from James 3.15. James 3.15 is what we're going to talk about in a few weeks, but that's the, the wisdom not from God that comes down, but the earthly, natural, and demonic wisdom that can come up through our tongues in what we say. Are we sobered yet by this? Are you sobered? Well, guess what? It gets worse. There's more bad news before we get to the good news. James is saying, look, you cannot curb this problem in your life by your own force of will. The temptation, I think, is to do this in the Christian life. I know I've done this over the years. It's where we get into a performance trap and we begin to say, listen, oh, I've, I've done it again. I, 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 I said those words. Oh, I, I tore that person apart. And in my heart of hearts, I don't even want to make it right with that person that I gossiped about that person to. And I just, I'm torn up inside. I, I need to stop, right? It's, it's like, you know, I just need to, to stop doing what I'm doing. I wish I could cut my tongue out, right? You just, you're, you're trying to stop it by force of willpower. James is saying that won't work. It won't work. He said, look, all the beasts and birds and reptiles, all of those creatures can be tamed, but you're not going to be able to tame this in your life. You can't. You can't do it. He, he's wanting Christians to just relinquish that idea and say that's the flesh. Can't do it. it. says, verse 8, But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I was out golfing uh, on the driving range with my son Logan the other night. At 10 o'clock at night, I went out to hit some balls. I had been given a new uh, driver, and 
man, it's like a whole different game now with uh, a real driver. You know, it goes a little bit farther. I was having fun, but there was a fox that came out, you know, and I think it, it's part of the sort of the, the animal territory out there by the range, and it's almost like a mascot. I think people are used to the animal, and it's as if it's tame walking by us. It's five or six feet away from us walking around. We're kind of going, okay, club up, <laughs> you know. But, but I'm, I was thinking, you know, animals can be tamed, not necessarily domesticated, but tamed. But we can't tame our tongue. Now, we're left with a dilemma, almost a riddle in this passage, because on one hand, James is saying, look, you've got to bridle your tongue. And if, if your tongue, like bitten bridle in a horse, is controlled by the power of the Spirit, then you're able to turn your whole spiritual life, remember? And he says in, in verse 26 of James chapter 1, he says that if you don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving your heart and your religion is worthless. So which is it? And I just sat with this passage and thought, man, this is a riddle. This is something that's a dilemma. It's a catch-22. We're supposed to, at some level, bridle our speech, and yet we can't tame it. So which is it? Well, in the last point, I think I found the answer. I don't think that the point is going to give it away, because the point is more bad news that begins in verse 9. Speech is, by its nature, duplicitous. Duplicitous. Look at verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. More bad news. The bad news is this. Oftentimes we're duplicitous in what we say. At one moment we're blessing God, or at least we think we are. And then in the same breath, we go home, we leave the church, and we, we get in our car, and we, we curse man. Behind shut doors, the privacy of our own homes, in the privacy of our own hearts, we're beating people up inside. Duplicity, hypocrisy, that's what he says. He says, we're so hypocr- hip- hypocritical with what we say. The word bless is eulogize, and James is picking up on the tradition of the Jewish religion of eulogizing God. It was called the Shimonai Eshrei, which is the 18 prayers of benediction that the Jews would pray over and over to God. Three times a day they would pray prayers that would end with, Blessed be thou, O God. It was a tradition. And anytime God's name was mentioned, they would say, Blessed be he, traditionally. I'm sure that there was some, some sincerity in these prayers at times, but if there wasn't sincerity there, then it was just a cult religion. David blessed God when he dedicated the temple goods that were being offered, that he was giving over to his son Solomon to be built and he said, O oh Lord God, blessed are you. It is you who are, who are our father forever and ever, First Chronicles 29. That was a sincere way to bless God. But I think James is hitting on hypocrisy here and that the blessing here of verse 9 of God is even just superficial. Look at verse 10. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now, him saying the same mouth is James picking up on Jesus' picture of where Jesus confronted the Pharisees. 
And Jesus confronted the Pharisees in Matthew 15 or Matthew 11, 15. And he said, listen, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's not choosing the right food according to the law that defiles a person. If you put the wrong food in, then you're defiled. No, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. And James is giving the same rebuke in a different way, saying, look, you've got the same mouth hole, and out of the same mouth, out of the same opening, is coming a blessing in one moment and then a cursing in another. It's extreme, and it's also a contradiction. Sinful words contradict your faith. He's saying it's a contradiction. It, it shouldn't be this way. Look at verse 10. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. You shouldn't be cursing someone who was made in the likeness of God. Genesis 1.26 talks about how every man, woman, boy and girl, every baby, every son, every daughter in your life, every enemy that you have, every perceived enemy that you have, every friend, every almost friend, people that you like, people that you don't like, every race, every person that talks in a different language in front of you. All of these people, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people are made in God's image, believer or unbeliever, rich or poor. And if you're blessing God and saying that you're going to bless God and then you tear people down, what's going on? That's a contradiction. That's extreme. It's extreme. It's a lot of bad news, right? When in the midst of the bad news, I've already told you the good news. It's verse 10 again. James, very pastorally, I think, is trying to reach the heart of the believer and says, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. What James is doing here is he's saying, Listen, don't settle for living in the catch 22. Don't settle for the riddle effect in your life. Don't settle for the life as a Christian where in one sense you think you're blessing God and in another sense you're just this hypocrite. He's saying it ought not to be this way. There is strong language here. I kept looking it up in the original language and he's the idea of it not being so is the idea of James saying this thing should not be born in your life as a Christian. James is calling the church to exercise faith here. We can't tame the tongue. We can't stop our tongues by force of will. But guess what? Living faith can conquer our tongues. You have to come to the place where you look at your life and you shout with James by faith to yourself, this ought not be so. By faith. You try to do it with willpower. And you say, stop it, stop it, stop it. That's the flesh. But by faith, James is saying, listen, just like all of the other challenges need to be borne out by faith, this is another one. By faith, you need to see that this contradiction should not rule your life. Like I've already said, if anyone is in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. Do you believe that it ought not be so? Do you believe that your tongue has been crucified with Christ? Do you believe that the power of God is bigger than your habit to speak angry words? Do you believe that? I mean, I have to believe it because I have to preach it to you and I have to live it out. I have a wife that keeps me accountable to passages like these. And I tell you, it's not easy, right? 
But I'll tell you what, we have to start with our own faith and say, you know what, God has opened my eyes and I'm in Christ. I'm I'm seated with him on his throne, Ephesians chapter 1. Sin no longer rules or has dominion over me, Romans chapter 6. Look at Paul's life in Philippians 1. He was always calling believers not to, not to obey by the force of will, but for their hearts to melt by who God has made them to be. Do you understand? Paul said, look, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching for the prize that's there for me, waiting for me. And what he would say is, look, Throw off the old self and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, was, he was always calling the church to see who God had made them to be. And when you see that by faith, you're transformed. And you'll see this sin habit tapering off in your life. It won't totally be defeated until glory. I know that. But James is saying you need to confront it and say this ought not to be so. Look, he further illuminates this in verses 11 and 12. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? And he says, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? That'd be unnatural. Should, should a fig tree all of a sudden have olives that you're going to put on your pizza? No, that's, that's not it. Or a grapevine produce figs? No, that, that things produce after their own kind. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's just... This, this would be a total contradiction to go up to a certain plant and, and you expect one fruit and it's produced something else. That doesn't make sense at all. That's what he's saying. He, the answer to all of these questions is emphatically no. Where he's talking about, for instance, fresh water, you know, back in the desert climate and culture, you would come upon a freshwater pond and if it was indeed fresh water, that was life-giving to you. That was salvation to you physically. But if suddenly you scooped your hand in and you were expecting fresh water and then it was known to be a freshwater pond, but it gave you salt water, that wouldn't be good. He was actually referencing probably the Dead Sea, which is the saltiest sea on earth. It's the sea of salt, which is the lowest place on the planet. It's 1,388 feet below sea level. It would be like scooping your hand into the Dead Sea and putting salt into your mouth. That would be such a contradiction if you expected fresh water. Now, we in our Americanized culture experience things like these sometimes. You ever get a bad soda at McDonald's or Burger King where, you know, you're kind of vending your own soda now, you know, instead of the worker behind the desk getting it for you, you go up and you go up to the machine and put it in and you expect your nice Juicy, sweet, sugary, syrupy, health-giving, you know, Coca-Cola. And it's over-carbonated. And you drink that thing in and you're going, blah. But that's what we're supposed to do spiritually here. We're supposed to go, you know what? Blah. It ought not to be this way. And by God's grace, it doesn't have to be. That's James's point. You're supposed to bless God and it be genuine. And you're supposed to look at people and see them as people that have been made in the image of God. You know how hard it is to talk somebody down if you start with Genesis 1.26 and say, you know what? Okay, I'm tempted to talk that person down, but Genesis 1.26 says that God made that person to reflect 
God's glory. Believer or unbeliever. That person was made to reflect God's majesty. He is, as David put it, fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, right? He is knitted in his mother's womb. He's a creator. He's creative. He's he's a person who can have a vision for his life or her life. That child that's annoying me, that child is fearfully and wonderfully made. That needs to control the way I speak to that child. Or that teenager that's getting under my skin. Or to you teenagers, to that parent that's, that's constantly getting under your skin. Fearfully and wonderfully made. That helps us control the way that we speak. And that's flipping for verse 9 on its head. Instead of cursing people made in the likeness of God, look at them as people made in the likeness of God. Live as it ought to be. Loving people, even loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, right? Jesus' words in Matthew 5 through 7. Also, if you pick up on the beginning of verse 9 and flip that on its head, blessing your father as Lord is a key to battling with issues of speech. What does it mean to bless God as Lord? It means to say, I praise you. The word is eulogize. I praise you, Father, as sovereign over my life. Psalm 103. The Lord rules in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. If you believe God is ruling in the details of your life, then that's going to control the subtext that's going on in your mind about your life and your circumstances. And guess what? That will begin to transform by faith the way you speak about your life and the way you speak to others. James, as a book, has as its theme living faith. Trusting God through trials by living faith. Considering it joy by living faith. Not blaming God for your own sin issues or your trials. That's living faith. Hearing the word of God and being a doer of the word of God by faith. Not judging people who are poor or who are rich that come into the assembly. That's James chapter 2. By faith. Not ignoring the poor person saying go be warm and be filled. Why? How? By faith. Now, how do we bridle the tongue that's untamable? That's this fireball arsonist in our life? We say it's not supposed to be that way. By faith. And we submit ourselves by the power of God to God's power, saying, God, you've got to do this, I can't. You know, any time that you are trying to tame your tongue by your own force of will, guess what? That's not by faith. Anytime you're saying, I've got to stop it with my own strength. Anytime, like if you're sitting there right now, and I've done this before, when you hear hard preaching, you say, okay, I'm going to re-up. I'm going to read the Proverbs straight through tonight. That's probably not by faith. Or I'm going to pray now for an hour, you know, every morning, you know. And that's going to change my life. I'm in Bible study. I'm signing up. I'm going to sign up in blood after the service. That's probably not what we're talking about here. That's probably not the issue. The issue is saying I'm relinquishing my own power to change my life. God, you've got to do this. This this person that comes out through my mouth. That's not who I am. I'm a new creature in Christ, and I'm going to melt before the promises and the truths that you've made me this new creature. 
Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, let's sort of drill this down with a few applications. Number one, and I've alluded to this, what is your running subtext concerning your sovereign Lord? Subtext, what you're thinking about, not saying. That's going to control what comes out of your mouth. What's your running subtext? Number two, do you pick and choose your circumstances you trust God for? Are you saying, okay, I can trust God for this. I can trust God for a church thing, but not a work thing or a family thing. We've got to give it all to God. Do we? And this is a good discipline by faith to affirm and reaffirm God's sovereign rule over your personal circumstances of life. Number two, what is your running subtext concerning your family, friends, and even people you don't like, enemies? What's your subtext about them? needs to be Genesis 126. I remember I walked into Burger Jim's downtown just this week. You know, I was downtown and needed a hamburger, and I walked in, and there was a group of people probably from the Middle East, and they were speaking their language, and I sat in the back, and I studied for this morning as I ate my Burger Jim hamburger. And I thought to myself, you know, God made those people. Every tribe, nation, tongue, and people... God's gathering people to himself, and they need the gospel if they don't yet know Jesus Christ as Lord. That's subtext stuff. You're you're controlling, you're shepherding your mind, you're thinking about people. People that are close to you, people that are far from you. You have to give that to God. Number three, what is your running subtext concerning yourself? Who do you believe God has made you to be? Do you believe God has given you the power To live the resurrection life. Number four, living faith is relinquishing control. This is my definition. Relinquishing control over to God concerning your relationships and your circumstances. All these take-home points are, you know, over there. You can pick them up on the way out. But um, we need to all sort of go to the altar before God, don't we? And lay our tongues there, our speech there, our hearts there and say, God... I want to relinquish my control over my life, and I want you to take control in a greater way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we know that, Father, we cannot live the Christian life in our own strength, but God, we are commanded to live the life by the strength that you supply, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We agonize and we fight the good fight of faith, We strip off the flesh and we want to put on Christ. And I pray, God, that you would help us in the words that we say. Help me this week in my own home and with my own family, with my wife, with my children. Let me, God, see a bridled tongue in a new way, a transformed life in a new way in my household. And as I speak to people at church or on the way or in the community, Help me do that. And I pray that, God, we would all repent as a church and say together, it ought not to be this way. We want, Lord, a fresh witness and a fresh effect and power in our lives. And I pray, God, that you would do that work in us that you've promised to do to transform us from one level of glory to the next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Let's stand for our final prayer. Um, I want to just invite any of you that needs the Lord, if you need to turn to Christ for the first time, today is the day of salvation. We'll be down front to help you.